How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Um, you know, before we dive in to the text and pick up where we left off in this sermon series, we thought it was appropriate to spend a few moments in prayer and reflection, given the significance of this weekend uh, for New York, uh, for our nation, and for that matter, the events that took place 20 years ago reverberated across the world. 9-11 um, is a very heavy day uh, of remembrance. Uh, the neighborhood I live in, in the Rockaways, um, the somberness was felt because uh, it's historically been a neighborhood where many active and retired firemen uh, live. And so uh, they lost so many lives as a result of 9-11. Whether you lost someone uh, or not, or, or know someone kind of a few relationships away, or if you just remember that day and you felt the heaviness of it yesterday, we wanted to take a moment to pray. Um, I, I can't remember the author that said it, but the phrase that he coined was, I'm beginning to realize that much of prayer is mourning. So much of our time when we come before God, there's an element of grieving what is as we claim to what we know what should be. Um, when we encounter suffering, it's a reminder that this world as we experience it is not the way it was created to be experienced. That's why our hearts reject the pain and the suffering. It feels abnormal. It feels like it does not fit. And that's our souls crying out to God who originally created our world for flourishing, for beauty. We're going to lead us in this time where we're going to put up a prayer on the screen. And I want to invite us to pray this prayer aloud together in your own kind of volume, your own pace. Let's begin. God of love, we remember before you the thousands of innocent lives that were lost on that unforgettable morning of September 11, 2001. We also remember the courage of the countless men and women who put their lives at risk in order to rescue, alleviate, and bring solace to the afflicted. Help us to continue to work for a world free from every form of hatred, violence, and ignorance. May terrorism in all its forms disappear from the face of the earth. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Just for 30 seconds right now, in person, online, if you know someone, yourself included, that's been impacted by the events of 9-11. Just bring that person before God, bring yourself before God, our city, our nation. Bring your healing, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying in person, online. The scripture that we're spending time in this morning in the book of James, I want to warn you, is a heavy scripture. Um, this scripture cuts, <laughs> cuts us to the knees. Um, I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself, pray, and then we're going to dive in. James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 those who consider themselves religious 
and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we stand before your word, we do so with expectant open hearts that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us. May we hear your voice this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, in 2018, there was a guest curator working on a grand reopening at the Terrace Museum in France. And he noticed that a work of art by uh, the artist whose uh, the museum bears the, its name, Terrace, it depicted buildings that were constructed after his death in nine, 1922. And so as they were preparing to reopen and they noticed this painting by the artist that the museum is named after, they noticed there's, paint, there's buildings in this painting that were constructed after he died. This doesn't make sense. As they looked further, they found that that was not the only fake. In fact, they found that 82 of the 140 works in the museum were not by the artist. And it resulted in a staggering $14 million of fraud that to this date they still haven't solved. And so someone with a Crayola and pastels went nuts and made a ton of money and cheated the people of France. Why I begin there is because as the title of this sermon series is Authentic Faith, and we've been wrestling with this idea of what is authentic faith? And we've been looking at how James has been addressing to people that have suffered persecution, have lost everything for their faith in Jesus. Keep in mind, this was not someone going through a bad circumstance because they made a bad decision. Uh, have you ever seen someone complain about consequences that they brought on themselves? It's like, man, I have empathy, but you are experiencing your decisions. And so but this was not a bad decision that resulted in their lives being turned upside down. They put faith in Jesus, and a result of that, they were persecuted, put to death. And because of that, many of them scattered throughout the then-known world, trying to wait this thing out and survive and follow Jesus. And to them, James has written some shocking, grounding things like, consider it pure joy when you go through suffering and trial. And we've looked at all these things that James has spoken of that essentially build up what we are calling authentic faith, true faith, not forfeit faith, not a forgery kind of faith, but true faith has the elements that James has been talking about, the ability to consider suffering through the lens of joy, to know that when we're going through the fire of trials, our character is being changed, to have an identity that is not rooted in our possessions or lack thereof. We have covered so much ground. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this posture of being attentive, that in the midst of being going through suffering and their lives being put through so much, James invites them to live in a posture of being attentive to God's voice. 
And furthermore, we looked at going from beyond being attentive to actually receiving God's word inside of our souls and that that word gives us a new nature. That now in Jesus, we have an entirely new nature. We have a capacity to love, to forgive that is not of human origin, that it is supernatural life coursing through us and that we have to nurture that new nature. We've covered so much. Today, James confronts us powerfully because he raises a very sobering thought. Last week, we talked about that it's possible to be deceived if you hear God's word, but don't do it. And James uh, places this incredible picture. He says, a person who hears God's word and doesn't obey is like someone who looks at themselves in the mirror, walks away, and forgets what they look like. And so he's describing what self-deception looks like when you hear God's word and don't obey it. And we talked about that Jesus is speaking to us not so that we could post him, tweet him, debate what he's saying. He's, he's, he's speaking to us to call us to obey. That's what James says, do what God says. And if we don't, we go into self-deception. Now James is saying there's another layer of self-deception that we need to be aware of And that's when he talks about worthless religion. Did you hear what James says? Those who consider themselves religious. And and when you hear the word religious, think, insert the word faithful. He's not talking about that you're ritualistic, that you're following some code. It's just you're faithful. Those who consider themselves faithful to God, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, and then he spells that out. So what James is is putting before us, worthless religion and religion that God says is pure. And he's contrasting the two, and he's letting us know the characteristics of worthless religion and religion, faithfulness that God acknowledges and considers as real and vital. And in worthless religion, James is bringing up something quite alarming. He's letting us know that self-deception is possible for people that consider themselves faithful to God, yet not knowing that they're completely off the mark. Why is this a sobering thing for us in this room? Because you and I are in the company, more than likely, that we are people that consider ourselves faithful to God. Otherwise, why are we here? Sleep is amazing. Can I get an amen? And and I know some of you, this morning it was hard to leave Pastor Pillow uh, and, 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 you know, Bedside Baptist. You know, it was hard for you to pull up. But you're here because you're faithful to faithful people, to praying people, to serving people, to people who profess faith in Jesus. James says, it's possible that you could be deceiving yourselves, that you could have worthless religion. This this is escalating fast because James, he doesn't say that our faith is reduced in its potency, that it's weakened or needs to be deepened. He says it's worthless. He didn't say, if you fall into this category, your faith is struggling and it just needs some strength. It needs some fine-tuning. No, he says, this is worthless. 
worthless. We're talking about having authentic faith, and James is saying it's possible to have worthless faith, faith that is worth nothing. Have you ever thought you had more money in your bank account than you realized, and you found out at the wrong moment, like when you're paying for something? Ever thought something was more valuable than it was? I remember hearing of a, of a gentleman that was banking on a baseball card. He had prized this thing, protected it. This thing had survived family members. It, it was valued above all, and this is what he was banking on to buy a house in the future. The value of it was that high, except he didn't realize that he had the wrong card. It was the wrong year. And when crunch time came, he found out it was worthless. I don't know about you, but I'm gonna, if I'm going to serve Jesus, if I'm going to call him my Lord, if I'm going to show up to places like this and practice my faith, I don't want to be found out to have worthless faith. And the danger is he's saying you can be deceived. You know the problem about being deceived? is that you're the last one to know it. When someone is deceived, they don't know. You ever seen someone who's deceived into thinking someone else is a good person, like relationship stuff? That's been such a painful thing to watch over the years. See someone connect, and you know, everybody else knows this person's no good, but then they come back, what do you think? Aren't they great? They're amazing. And you're like, they have no teeth, you know, they're unemployed. They, they're, they're, they have criminal record, like active, you know, like this is not good. But they got the, those Google eyes. It, it's, and they're the last one to know it. James is, is, is coming to followers of Jesus and saying, I don't want you to be the last person to know that your faith may be worthless if you ignore these key things. He talks about three fronts of obedience, three aspects of obedience, and we're going to unpack these things, that if these things are not present in our life, we have some examination to do because we may be in a state of having worthless religion. The first one is a controlled tongue. Can you say that with me? Controlled tongue. Second, care for the vulnerable. Care for the vulnerable. Say that with me. Care for the vulnerable. And the third, Christ-like holiness. Christ-like holiness. In fact, the rest of the book of James expounds on these three ideas at length. Next week, we're going to dive into chapter 2 and so on. You're going to see that these ideas of a controlled tongue, care for the vulnerable, and Christ-like holiness are things that James keeps expounding on because, again, he doesn't want these people and, by extension, us to be found potentially having worthless religion. Religion that is on the surface looks like it's authentic, but it's actually a forgery. And what are the elements of having worthless religion? The first thing is if we don't have a controlled tongue. I want to frame these three things from the movements of inner outer and upward. We'll, we'll see what that means in a moment. Inner, outer, upward. 
So the first thing James talks about is a controlled tongue. I'm going to put that in the category of inner. And you're wondering, why would a controlled tongue have to do anything with our inside life, our interior life? Here's why. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says this. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When James talks about that worthless religion, one of the characteristics of worthless religion is having a tongue that's not controlled. And when Jesus says that what comes out of the mouth is actually dictated by what's inside of the heart, then we're getting closer to understand something. There's no way to control your tongue unless your heart is being transformed. The way to control our tongues, as James is saying, that we need to be in the practice of, that those who have authentic faith, one of the characteristics is you have a controlled tongue, the only way possible for that to happen is for your heart to be transformed because what is in your heart will come out of your mouth. If you want to know what a person values, what's, what's most important, what they think of when they're waking up in the morning or going to sleep at night, when they're by themselves, what, what is prized by them, just let them talk. Let them talk and listen. Eventually, their mouth will tell on their heart. Even if they don't want to reveal it, eventually it'll come out. Whatever is in our hearts will come out of our mouths. And so James is saying that worthless religion, one of the attributes is that it doesn't have a controlled tongue. And now, I don't know about you, but this is a bit jarring for me because the first thing I would think worthless religion would be categorized as, as having unorthodox belief. That worthless religion would be a religion that your doctrine is not biblically grounded. But that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's not even getting into that area. He's saying one of the things you should be aware of is having a controlled tongue because here's the unfortunate truth. You can believe the right things and still have a reckless tongue. You can be doctrinally sound yet have a razor coming out of your mouth. You know, they studied with a high degree of accuracy that one of the characteristics that leads to divorce, like almost 95% of the time, is that when couples are seeking therapy, when they're observing couples having an argument, if there is a high degree of contempt for one party or the other, more than likely that marriage won't survive. Why is that? Because when you have contempt towards someone, you typically don't restrain your tongue around them. When you don't respect someone, when you don't value them, then your tongue is not going to be restrained because you don't care what lands. James is saying, you and I could have worthless religion. Our faith, our faithfulness to God could be a forgery if it doesn't transform how we speak, what we say, and why we say it. How many know you could say the right thing but say it from a wrong motive? 
and on paper, no one would ever say or ever be able to fault you and say, what you said was wrong. What you said was right. But you know, and I know, that our hearts can be off even if our words are accurate or pristine. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, this meme. It's a pretty funny thing about decoding corporate language in an email. I don't know if you've seen that. It's pretty funny. In that when someone says, please elaborate for clarification, the interpretation is, I don't understand you and I wish you would get to the point. How many have ever seen these professional emails and you know between the lines, it's just like, it, it, it's, <laughs> um, it, it sounds professional, but underneath, you know it's coming from a different place. James is, is, is calling us to recognize that if our faith in Jesus doesn't show up in the way we speak to each other, then our faith in Jesus hasn't gone deep enough yet. It's in the potential gray area of potentially being considered worthless. Right now, my prayer is for each of us, myself included, that the Holy Spirit would begin to bring up conversations that you've recently had and that there's some conviction that comes to us. Our relationships could be obliterated with just words. I know people that have gone their whole lifetime with a wound that was created by a word. One of the reasons why racism is so toxic to the human soul is because it charges words with such dehumanizing power. And when you hear that slur and it hits you, it wounds because these words come from a foul place. If our religion, if our faithfulness to God doesn't transform how we speak, it may be worthless. Even if you are doctrinally sound, even if your belief in Jesus would be considered completely biblical, but if it doesn't transform how we speak to one another, Jesus is coming to us now. That's not the only place. Maybe you're saying, whew, thank God, so far my faith is not worthless. I'm actually pretty good. I, I speak very kindly to people. You could ask my friends. You could see my post. I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, you know, I don't hurt people with my words. I'm glad you feel great about yourself right now. But we're not out of the woods yet. James doesn't just stop there. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We've gone from inner to the control of our tongue. What's in your heart will come out. So we need a transformed heart in order for us to have a controlled tongue. But now we're looking at outer, care for the vulnerable. Old Testament scriptures were filled with themes of justice for the vulnerable. 
If I just went through the Old Testament and put up every single verse that deals with God's heart for the outcast, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, we would be here for a couple of weeks. That's why it's so jarring in this day and age, and I've heard it, I've had conversations with people, and actually uh, a, a brother of mine, he's planting a church in a different part of the city. I won't say the name of the city, of the, the part of our city, because this part already has a bad reputation. Uh, all right, I'm going to say it. it's Staten Island. And so he's planting a church in Staten Island. And he was asked by someone visiting, is this a woke church? You know what they were actually asking? Is this a church where you're going to talk about stuff, racism? Are you going to talk about injustice? Because if you are, then maybe I don't join. Can I tell you, as a church, we don't talk about these things because there's like a wave of influence in our society. Going, like now all of a sudden society's talking about it, and so we're just jumping on the bandwagon of society. No, we're trying to jump on God's bandwagon. God has been saying about the poor. He's been speaking up for the voiceless and calling us to do so, and this is integral and core to our faith. I'll give you one scripture, Psalm 140 verse 12, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. I, I dare you, this week, go and do a Bible study. Go to BibleGateway.com. Type in the word justice. Type in the word poor and watch as your screen will fill. All the times God calls for his people to be mindful, to be loving, to be present, to serve the marginalized, the poor, those that are oppressed, those that are forgotten. This is not a new thing to our faith. This is not ancillary. This is not optional. This is not like, you know, I, I have my faith in Jesus, and if I get to it, then I'll get to concerns of justice. No, this is core to our faith. Being a voice for those in society being a voice for those that society often mutes is a call that's been core to the people of God forever. And so the idea of religion being worthless if it lacks concern and acts of loving care for the vulnerable is not a new idea. James is not stating a revolutionary idea that no one has ever heard. He's bringing the people of God to a core idea that we often ignore and miss. Because let me tell you, to love people in the margins is messy. It's hard. It's sacrificial. There's a reason why we ignore people in the margins. It's because it takes everything in us to go into those places. But yet James is saying a faith that doesn't have this at the core is worthless. But we just don't have Old Testament scriptures. We have the life of Jesus that models this so profoundly. If you look at who Jesus hung out with, he hung out with people that society pushed to the side. He hung out with questionable people. Can I tell you something? If the people you hang out with don't raise an eyebrow by religious people, you probably are not hanging out with the people that Jesus hung out with. Because if you looked at who Jesus hung out with, I tell you, all of us would have some questions. 
Like, yeah, why is Jesus always hanging out with those tax collectors? You heard about dinner last night? He was with a bunch of prostitutes. Jesus keeps hanging out with people that nobody wants to be around. This is who Jesus hung out with. I want you to imagine this. I want you to close your eyes, just where, where you're at, just for a moment online as well. And I want you to imagine that Jesus physically shows up to your neighborhood. And he begins to walk. Walk down the streets. Go into the businesses. Canvas the whole terrain. I want you to ask the question, where do you believe Jesus would walk to in your neighborhood? If you were following him, then that means you would be entering into those spaces too. Who would Jesus speak to? Where would he go? And if we were following him, where would we find ourselves in? Can I tell you, when I did that exercise and I thought of the neighborhood I live in and I thought of Astoria, my conclusion was Jesus would go to some places that would make me uncomfortable. He would go in certain settings that you typically don't find church people in. He would hang out with people that probably would never come through the doors on a Sunday morning. People that were really broken. On all, in the whole spectrum of brokenness. People that are broken through their success and their possessions, and people that are broken through their lack thereof. People that society considers valuable but are dying inside, and people that society has ignored. Jesus would go and meet with addicts, with egotistical people, selfish people. Guess what? Jesus would probably walk and talk to somebody who voted differently than you. Someone who has different political ideas than you. Different ethnicity. Different background. If our faith in Jesus isn't calling us outward, if in the midst of our prayer, our study of Scripture, the songs we sing, the gatherings we attend to, if it isn't rooting us and grounding us to live outward for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the outcast, for those that society ignores, but Jesus doesn't, then James is calling us to consider perhaps our religion might be worthless. Lastly, James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The last criteria or thing to look for to examine whether our faith is worthless or not is do we have Christ-like holiness. This idea of upward communion with God. I want you to notice the words that James says, because in the original language, it has some powerful meaning. He says that 
religion that God our Father considers to be, that he accepts as pure and faultless, is that one of the things is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, but the other one is that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. The key word in that phrase is to keep oneself. To keep oneself. Now, the idea of pollution, we all uh, have a sense of what that means. When, when, when something is polluted, it's uh, toxic elements are brought to it. It changes its consistency. It, it damages what's there by elements that are not natural to it. It's invasive. There's mixture that happens. And as a result, what once was pure now is diluted. It becomes toxic. It becomes dangerous. James is saying that religion that is worthless is one that allows ourselves to be polluted by the world. Imagine when factories dump toxic chemicals into water and now it comes downstream and all of a sudden the, the, the fish can't live and, and, and drinking water gets contaminated. This idea of the world dumping into us its values, its priorities, it's this, James is saying that religion that is worthless is one that doesn't keep themselves from being polluted by those things. Here's the dangerous thing to be aware of. You and I could profess faith in Jesus, yet inwardly have values that look more like the world than Jesus. We could profess faith in Jesus, yet be just as materialistic as the world. We can profess faith in Jesus, yet be just as out for ourselves, dog eat dog, as the world is. Not living with a heart to love and serve others, but to dominate and to use and exploit. You ever want to see that Christians so easily can find themselves with what the world values inside of them, polluting? Go to a Christian basketball league. It's an amazing experience. I have been in Christian sports leagues where push come to shove, all of a sudden, brother so-and-so is using choice words with brother so-and-so, and all of a sudden, you know, the Presbyterian's going to fight with the Baptists. You know what's going on? Nobody got knives here, right? This is going to escalate. It, it, it's, it's inside of us. Seen, I've seen people of God when in, the, in, the, in certain settings, all of a sudden, they begin to mirror and echo the same values of the world. Where if stuff is being said, we don't challenge it, we just go along with it. Through our silence or we add to it. And what that reveals is that somehow deep down inside, we've been polluted. James is saying, religion that isn't worthless keeps ourselves from being polluted. In other words, we watch over our hearts. Though we, we are people that are grounded in grace and know that God doesn't judge us or love us based on what we do, we are also a people that are grounded in holiness and know that there's certain things that God does not tolerate, that he has no like for, and he doesn't want those things to resonate and brew and stir in our hearts. We have to keep ourselves from being polluted. Keep ourselves from being 
just intoxicated with the values of this world. Why do we want the things that we want? Is it because God has called us to want it, or is it because we've been told that if you don't have those things, you don't matter? Are we keeping ourselves from being polluted? That's what James says. Unless we're keeping ourselves from letting the world intoxicate us and influence us and letting its values become ours, we can find ourselves in a space where our religion could be worthless. Do you realize that if we are not being attentive to this, to the state of our hearts in this area, that we could find ourselves in a state that after all of our prayers, after all of our sacrifice, after all of our Bible study, after all of our adherence to the Christian faith, we could find ourselves in a place where all of that could be considered worthless by God because we have not kept ourselves from being polluted by the world. You know, we often think of holiness in terms of abstaining from certain behaviors. So holiness becomes a form of moralism. But if you look at the way Jesus practiced holiness, it wasn't just that he abstained from doing certain things. Really where you see his holiness come to the forefront is that his life was driven by intimacy with the Father. Everything else was secondary. That's what drove his decision-making. His priorities for the day were be with the Father and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I'll teach, I'll do miracles, I'll go to this town or that town. But being with the Father, walking with the Father, that was what set his life apart. Holiness is more about intimacy. What is the primary thing that you are grounding your life in? What's the priority? What's number one? What's the thing that every other decision comes after that decision? See, Jesus was holy, yet he had dinner with tax collectors, prostitutes. He was hanging out at weddings. He was in synagogues. He was in people's homes. He was around the sick and dying. He talked to women in public, something that men weren't supposed to do in that culture. And he gave honor to little children. He did all of these things while he was holy. And look what he says to us in John 17, verse 14 and onward. It says, I have given them your word. This is his final prayer before he leaves, before the crucifixion. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus says something so profound there that I think us as followers of Jesus need to register. To be holy is not to be taken out of the world, but it's to be kept while being in the world. A lot of times as Christians, we define holiness by being so as far away as possible from the wrong element, from the wrong crowd. And hear me, sometimes there's wisdom for that. You're struggling with something and you can't be around things that compromise you. I get that. But very quickly, it goes to a legalistic thing. And now we stay away from certain people and certain things because we think that makes us better. We think that's what makes us holy. But Jesus lived this inwardly set-apart life, 
and he invites us into that same space. As I close, here's the real tension. If you've listened to these things that James says and you say, man, I don't want to have a worthless faith. I want my faith to be authentic, to be real. And so Jesus, help me to control my tongue. Jesus, help me to live outward and, and with care for the vulnerable, for the marginalized. And Jesus, help me to live upward with a sense of holiness set apart for you. The tension is that we can't do this on our own strength. If you went through these things and felt like you scored pretty well and you feel like your religion can't be worthless and now you're basing your sense of confidence on that, that's actually not what James is calling us to. The scriptures tell us if we don't have these things in place, our religion is worthless, but it doesn't tell us that if having those things in place, that that's what, bases, that's what you base your salvation on. Hear me very clearly. We're not proposing, the scriptures are not inviting you to a works-based life where you're doing all these things in order for your religion to have worth, for your faith in God to be true, and then for you to think, because I do these good things, God looks at me in a pleasing way. Actually, it's the opposite. Because God looks at you in a pleasing way, you can do these good things. Because he accepts us, because he redeems us, it's possible for us to have these things in our life that James warns us about not having. See, Jesus saving you and I, it shows up in our life by how we speak to each other and one another. It shows up in our lives with our care for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor. It shows up in our lives by whether we're allowing the world to pollute us or whether we're keeping ourselves, gauging our hearts, not letting those things that are inconsistent with who Jesus is take root in our hearts. And here's the powerful thing as we close. What makes all of this possible is not you trying harder, is not you determining and saying, that's it, today begins a new chapter. I'm gonna control what I say. I'm gonna live outwardly. I'm gonna live holy. What changes everything is that today you acknowledge that Jesus chose you, that he called you, that through his sacrifice, he invites you to a new life in him. And through that new life, it's possible for us to have pure religion, pure faithfulness that imbues the aroma of the gospel everywhere we go. Could I invite us to stand? As we stand, we're just going to turn our hearts to God in these next few moments in prayer and worship. But as we mentioned before, our prayer team here, for those that are in person, are here to the left through those doors. If anything resonated with you, anything has come up for you during the sermon that you feel, man, I need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Or anything you're going through that you would like prayer, the prayer team is here and they would love to pray with you. Again, to my left and the back through those doors. 
But at this time, if you feel comfortable, could I invite you to raise your hands in the presence of God? And begin to open your heart to the Lord's voice. If you sense his conviction around your tongue, how you speak to people, If you you felt this touch and saying, I want you to live outwardly. I want to empower you to care for those that others don't care about. Begin to confess that. Invite him in. If you felt this conviction around being polluted, letting influences of the world shape how we think and live, let's turn our hearts to God.